welcome to Arrows on Air, presented by Tomorrow's Air. I'm Christina Beckman, and this is a show where we meet artists, travelers, and scientists from all over the world to talk about art, travel, and climate action. Welcome, friends. We're here today with Marin Krings. She is an environmental photographer and visual storyteller, very active in telling climate action stories and advocating for hemp as a means of absorbing carbon dioxide. Marin's work has been published in Stern Magazine, The Outdoor Journal, Sustan, Happiness, Outdoor, Runner's World, and many other international media. Welcome, Marin. Hi, Christina. Wonderful to be here with you today. Yes, tell us, tell me, where are you calling from? You are not near me in San Francisco. No, that's true. I'm actually already, I think, nine hours ahead. I'm calling from the Tyrolean Alps in Austria. Aha. Is that, um, what is that, what's out your window? When you say that, I'm imagining, you know, like Hansel and Gretel in a village. <laughs> actually out my window right now i see a huge storm cloud and probably behind that some snow falling on the peaks of the mountains <laughs> uh-huh is this where did are you did you grow up there or what um how did you come to be in the tyrolean alps um i partially grew up here so i'm born german and my family has a mountain retreat or a mountain cottage or cabin up on the mountain here in austria so I spend quite a bit of time in the wilderness of the Austrian Alps and I keep returning back here. And well, I'll tell you a bit later about that. Right now I'm still a car or rolling home nomad. So uh-huh. in the time of Corona, I had to park my car and I did that here in, in the Alps in Austria. That is wonderful. Well, so we, I'd like to get a little background on how, how, people come to the Tomorrow's Air um, fold. I think we, I came to know you, I think first through the Adventure Travel Trade Association World Summit in Sweden. Was that one of, was that our connection point? That was our connection point, absolutely. I saw you on stage there. I don't think we truly touched personally, but I was very inspired by listening to you. Mm Mm-hmm. And how did you get into what what brought you to the ATTA meeting? I mean, you're not a tour operator, so but you travel a lot. That's right. Um, I came to the ATTA because I was temporarily living in Sweden in 2018, and that's where I met Chris Doyle. And Chris and I had very interesting and inspiring conversations about sustainability and how to be a better human in today's world. And eventually Chris said that he would find it very interesting if I would join the ATTA. So I applied for the World Summit and I actually got in as a media delegate and have been part of the ATTA since. That's amazing. Um, so you, and, and you have, um, we mentioned in the beginning that you have been published in these various um, magazines and is that as a photographer or a writer? My my sense is that you have kind of a kaleidoscope sort of career. We're going to hear about. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's a way to say it. Um, it's always been primarily as a photographer, but 
I found very early on as, you know, when I was starting my freelance career as a photographer, that was really difficult to publish anything unless you were also supplying the writing to it. So it was in the beginning, it was more kind of like a means to get a job done to also do the writing. But then I also started becoming much more interested in the words that would accompany my work. And I published three books already. So writing really was always a big part of kind of, you know, doing that extra explanation to the photography if if had been. So mm-hmm. there's there's partially publications where I do the writing and the photography, and then sometimes I publish where it's more the classic on assignment kind of job where I just do the photography and then somebody else actually does the writing. <laughs> and you, so what are the t- what are the subjects of the three books? The first book I published was about the Austrian Alps. Very fitting. Um, it was an experience because I uh, literally dropped out for two summers and became a an alpine farmer so i was milking cows and herding cows how old were you when you did this ah that was exactly 10 years no actually 11 years ago i did it for the first summer and then 10 years ago i did the second summer and it was such an amazing experience to just be you know, up in, in the high altitude mountains with the cows and running a farm, which was, you know, beyond imagination because there was no electricity. Running water was not really a given either. So that experience led me to publish my first photography book. And were you living in a city life before you did that? Like, was this a major sort of break from life that had all your friends and family scratching their heads wondering what had come over you uh, <laughs> i'm pretty sure they did i would <laughs> lie if i would say they they saw that coming um i was always a bit of uh, both type of things like during my college days i was living in bigger cities i was in savannah georgia actually um so i i partially would join very much the urban lifestyle of hustle and bustle but then growing up as a child already on the mountains i was also used very much to being out in nature and being rather secluded and not having electricity and all these modern technology commodities that we tend to take for granted so it it was it was maybe not that bad of a switch for me because i knew what i had to expect but then again doing the farming work and milking the cows and really having a very tough daily procedure of what had to get done that that was tough and that was quite a journey i can imagine but you liked it so much you went back you did two summers Absolutely. So the first summer, it was like all really, really old style, no electricity. And I really had a very old milking system. So it was mostly still done by hand. And then the farmer decided after that summer to rebuild that mountain farm and had like a super snazzy, high tech um, alpine farm. And when I saw that, I was like, wow, I wonder how much of a difference this will make to to actually running a mountain farm. So I decided to just do it another summer. <laughs> I There's so much in here that I know nothing about. The old milking system. So I'm imagining you sitting on a bucket in rubber boots, milking cows with very strong forearms. 
Yes. Um, let's let's skip the part of the strong forearms. <laughs> I, still, <laughs> I still had a milking system that was run by um, water pressure. And if water pressure wasn't high enough, then I had a, um, what is it called? These external power generators that, that mm-hmm. you set up. So mm-hmm. that, would, that would, sometimes that would run the milking machine, but you still had to do a lot of manual work because nothing was, the milk wasn't going through tubes into a container or anything, but I basically had to carry every bucket with 25 liters of milk outside and pour it by hand into the cooler. So it was, um, I didn't start with the big forearms, but I definitely ended with some big forearms. (laughs) That's amazing. And so then this, these experiences inspired your first book. Exactly. That was the inspiration for the first one. And that led pretty much into the second one, because as I was spending so much time on the mountain, I realized that it would actually be quite helpful if I had a bit more of mountaineering experience. And that's when I joined a mountain rescue team here in Austria, in Tyrol. And they kind of realized that I had published a book and they really liked it. So they came up to me and asked me if I could do a book about the mountain rescue. And that was the second book. And um, I love your train of thought is like, I don't think these are leaps that most people make when they, that they say, oh, I realize I need to have more mountain rescue skills, I guess I'll just go out and get those. Tell me what, how, how did we get from being on a farm and milking to needing mountain rescue skills? And then, and then you just signed up and learned how to be a mountain rescue person. I'm sensing you're very, very, um, determined. (laughs) It was, uh, it was a bit of the, you know, circles in life that you take. So I was dating an Austrian, uh, guy by that time and he was in the mountain rescue and, I found myself several times while out photographing that I was in such weird spots and situations that I was literally feeling like, okay, I'm, I might actually have an alpine accident now and I need someone to know where I am. So I would call my then boyfriend and literally just be like, okay, I'm here and here and like roughly between this spot and that spot. And I'm not sure if I'm making it. So when that happened for the third time, he actually freaked out and he said, okay, listen, this is not going to happen anymore. You're either going to stop going to the mountains in these spots where you shouldn't be, or else you're going to have to really beef your, your alpine knowledge so you don't have to call me because who am I to come and rescue you from spots that I don't even know where they are? Mm-hmm. Amazing. I love it. And so then you became a member of the mountain rescue team. Yeah. Exactly. And are you are you still a member of that crew? I imagine you would keep up those skills. You have your wilderness first responder and all that kind of thing. I was in the mountain rescue for six years in total. And I actually had, uh, well, a not so well uh, accident while I was a mountain rescuer during a rescue mission. And that left me a little bit um, disabled on one of my feet. So I, you know, to really keep being part of the mountain rescue, the accident was too grave and I decided to not be part of the team anymore. And so in total, I was, I was with them for six years and then I basically dropped that. But I agree with you. The, the knowledge of, of having done this kind of work really stays with you. And it's something that can be applied to so many other 
destinations than just necessarily climbing or alpine sports. What an incredible experience. I know in my life, I grew up in Alaska and have had, I mean, I'm not, I'm not an, a mountain expert, but I know that my time in the mountains and my time in the wilderness sort of inform my passion for climate action. And I wonder, do you feel like, can you, can you see that in your own self? Oh, 100%. Absolutely. I think the more time a person spends outdoor, the more you see the fragility as well as the strength of nature. And you really come to probably acquire a bit of a di different respect for nature. So I, I absolutely agree. I think there were a lot of uh, different points in my life that actually triggered my environmental interest. Mm -hmm. So what was the second book? Um, the second book was the one on mountain rescue. And then the third one was a book that I did for the tourism organization of the Tooks Valley, which is um, in Tsilatal or Tsila Valley. Uh, that's like one of these glacier valleys here in Austria, which is, you know, the glacier is open year round. And they had asked me to do, to do like a, year-round documentation about the valley, about their customs, about, you know, anything from touristic events, but also kind of the more quiet and intricate stories about local people and their customs. What a beautiful project. So they, I know also many um, aspiring travel writers and photographers, like that sounds like a dream kind of engagement. How did you make that, how'd you make that connection? Uh, the connection was actually also done through the first book because um, they heard about the first book and they they thought it was really peculiar that a German girl would come to an Austrian high alpine farm because um, there's a saying amongst the locals here in Austria that you know you have to be really strong and really persistent and you have to have certain skills in order to run an alpine farm so to the let's say old school austrians it's kind of bizarre that a girl from germany that has to them no necessary connection to the mountain and to animals would just run a farm like that and so you know i was always watched up on a little bit um with that agony of who is this? Why is she tabbing into our world? Why is she doing our job? This should be, you know, this is not meant for tourists. And so when, when my first book got done, they actually invited me to do a book presentation and a keynote speech. And it was quite hilarious because there were all these farmers from the Tooks Valley that came. And the tourism director was really scared because he told me afterwards, he said, I was scared that they will just rip you apart. And they walked into the talk and literally looked me from top to bottom and just gave me these snotty looks like, who are you to tell us how mountain farming works? Yeah, <laughs> a very insular group. It it was. And that, and then at the same time, it was so funny because we, we ended up having such great talks after the after the speech and the book presentation because they realized that I was just in awe for the work that they do and for the culture that they are keeping up and that it wasn't my part to come in and explain anybody how they should be doing their job, but more that I was taking what they were doing and actually setting it onto a stage and giving it some 
what do you call it, like spotlight to be looked upon from people who don't really know this kind of work and who have absolutely no understanding of how physically demanding and how much responsibility you are taking. I mean, you're taking care of somebody else's animals. It's kind of like taking care of 50, 70 kids in the summer. <laughs> yes. So your work was sort of a celebration of of these people and places. I think that's so, I love that you're, um, it seems to me that you're kind of following your passion all along the way in your life. Like, have you ever been at a point where you were, you know, did you ever have a traditional kind of career? I know, you know, lots of people kind of follow a traditional path and then break away, but it seems like you've been, you've been broken away from the start. Uh, I, I would say I had about one year of traditional career. And that was actually when I finished college in the United States. And I had that optional practical training year, which is a work mm -hmm. visa that's given to you. And I mm -hmm. really wanted to take advantage of that. So I kind of went through the whole you know, in parentheses, normal, where I was working at my college as a photographer, then I was working in, in a photo lab, and then I was teaching summer school as a photography teacher, and, you know, doing all this very traditional um, work where I was receiving orders and just kind of having to get my job done. And it was so difficult, <laughs> because I'm, you know, I keep thinking, ahead or I keep having my own thoughts when I'm being given a task. And I think that's very problematic when you're supposed to be just receiving an order and, and getting it done. Mm -hmm. So needless to say that I think a lot of my uh, bosses or the people that I work for, I mean, we always had good um, standing with each other, but I was definitely not an easy employee because while they had asked me to do paperwork, I was already off, you know, applying with their work for some grant and they were like well it's really nice you're doing this but you i didn't ask you to mm -hmm. <laughs> and i think this is very early when i found that i had um too much initiative on my own that i wasn't really a good worker to receive any orders and then just get them done but that i rather wanted to do a freelance kind of job where i could you know, be creative and kind of approach things from this multidisciplinary standpoint where I can always combine my love for photography, but also my my urgency of, of addressing environmental and social issues. And you were okay with the risk of, I think a lot of um, people sort of struggle with, you know, whether whether it will work out. Like if I leave this paid job, and go do this thing that I really want to try. Maybe it won't work out and I won't have money and I won't be able to support myself. But you sort of took that freelance leap and it doesn't, it sounds like you've never looked back. Yeah, uh, yes, to a certain degree, you're right about that. Um, I would be lying if I would say that it always went super easy. I mean, the first probably seven years of my uh, freelance career were just really, really hard. And I mean, it included just so many, you know, thinking out of the box moments where, you know, if, if I literally had no money, I mean, going to the, to the Alpine farm and milking cows was one of the moments where I literally was completely out of money. 
a job didn't really work out too well. And then that client teared me in front of court, which was a very uneven fight they were trying to to fight. And drama. It was a pure drama. I mean, I, I literally went through everything that you can possibly have in the independent working force. So um, I think looking back, if I would have been able to look into my future, I would have probably not chosen to go that path. But since I didn't know what the future had for me, I was just always very optimistic and just said, hey, you know what? I'm going to try it. If it doesn't work out, I can always turn back. I can always find a different solution. But right now, I really want to try this. <laughs> I think that's such a, I, I always ask myself if I'm going to be more upset for having not tried or for having failed. And I usually, I mean, I think I always kind of land on like, I'm going to, I'm going to be more upset with myself if I don't try than if I walk down the path and maybe it doesn't work out, but I would rather have given it a shot than not tried. I fully agree with you. Yeah. I, so I just love your journey. It's so, it's so circuitous and curious. And I, do we are going to get to this subject of how hemp absorbs carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and can be used in so many different ways. Um, before we get to that, though, I have to ask about Savannah, Georgia, which is, I mean, a very culturally distinctive, you know, the American South is a, is a, <laughs> is a real place. So what got you to tell us briefly just how, how that happened? I think the first time I heard about Savannah or SCAD, the Savannah College of Art and Design, was when I was an exchange student in uh, in Florida. So I spent one of my high school years down in Florida as an exchange student. I was, through my swimming activities, I was offered a scholarship. And that was the first time I actually thought about, oh, there's actually an opportunity or a possibility I could possibly study in the United States. And having this, you know, slight idea stuck in my head, um, I started kind of looking for colleges that would possibly interest me. And I was already really, really deeply engaged into photography during high school. And I had a wonderful high school um, teacher in, in, in that exchange year, Tom Wetzel, who even now is one of my big mentors. And that and I think it was maybe it was him who had mentioned Savannah College of Art and Design. So I started looking into it, and I was like, "Wow, this is this is an amazing place. That would be like my top dream." And when I started looking for colleges to go to, I had gotten a scholarship in Germany when I like straight out of high school that was designated towards um, an international year of study. So I kind of had my first ticket there. And then I got a portfolio scholarship from SCAD, which, you know, taking those two together, that's actually what got me there. Hmm. Amazing. Um, I So your swimmer, mountain rescue, I'm starting to get the picture. Very active. I want to <laughs> um, ask you, tell, can you recall, I bet there was a picture, like a, what was the first picture that you took that you liked, the, an image that you were like, ah, this is great. I mean, how do you... What set you on the photography path? I'm imagining some early success that then led you further down the photography path. Um, that's that's a really interesting question. Uh, wow, this is like deep psychology now. <laughs> I, well, I'm thinking of my own, like, you know, I my dad was a, a great photographer. And I remember 
you know, a specific picture I took when I lived in Washington, DC, and I showed it to him and he, he complimented it. And that really helped me. I'm not a great photographer now, but it, but a little encouragement in those early stages. And it seems like photography has been such a path in for you on exploring new places and ideas. I thought that occurred to me, but if you don't have a great answer, it's Um, okay. It's well, I I think you just uh, pinpointed on something. I think photography was always a bit of a passport in for me. Um, mm-hmm. I started very early on to communicate about these things that I couldn't really do in language. It was mm-hmm. photography. So oftentimes I would come back from trips I had taken with my family, and it was the images that I would use to express what it was that I experienced that I couldn't really put into words, and. I remember Steve McCurry's um, photograph of the Afghan girl. I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. If you're mm-hmm. Yes, of course, with the, the laser eyes. Yes. And that was one of these, and I'm sure it is for a lot of other people as well. It was one of these striking images to me, which just spoke words beyond the image itself. And I think ever since then, it was such a, you know, photography became that um transcendent language that kind of overbridged these things like language barriers, cultural barriers, um, seeing and experiencing things that maybe at the time I couldn't really put into place why this was happening, what was happening. And it was always the camera that was capturing these things. And it's even nowadays when I go back to my early photography, I I keep finding new things in them. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, that's it is exciting. So part of the um, part of what we're trying to do with tomorrow's air is help make climate action and carbon removal more accessible through art. And so we have the Artists for Air program, which is another way that we're um, collaborating with you. And I think the the images are exactly a way to, you know, climate is always talked about in such scientific terms or in kind of um i think a lot of climate photography is is negative or sort of look at these terrible things that are happening and changing which is true we have to document that stuff but i want to come around now to what you're photographing these days which is hemp the hemp project was something that i completely stumbled over four years ago in south tyrol in italy and I was instantaneously just completely amazed by this plant because um, I had this this guy, Werner Schönthaler, who I met and who at that time was a hemp farmer. And he basically told me that you know hemp can feed us, shelter us, and dress us. And if you look at these three things, these are all the basic necessities of humans. And that really fascinated me, especially because at that point, I was totally unaware that hemp could be anything else than a drug, than marijuana that you can smoke. So it was out of the, you know, partially the curiosity of of leaping beyond that image of a drug, but at the same time, trying to verify if everything that I had just heard is actually truth. And that led me on a four-year journey so far to investigate and document um, what the hemp industry really is. 
And I would say by far, I have moved beyond the image of that you can make great clothing and long lasting clothing and that you can build biodegradable and carbon negative houses from hemp and that you can make food from it and medication. I mean, these are things that are becoming more mainstream nowadays. But what's really fascinating me with the hemp plant is that it's sort of a, a way for, especially for a visual storyteller to focus on something positive within this whole climate and social crisis that we're encountering right now. Because as you said, most images are melting glaciers or avalanches or landslides coming down is, you know, cities being underwater, people losing their lands, people you know, losing their entire livelihoods as well as homes. So it's, um, that's something that we need to understand that we really need to sort of have in our present mind. But at the same time, what's better than offering people a solution? Because nobody will be willing to look at a problem unless you can also offer them some sort of a solution to go with that problem. And I think my, my current aim really is to take scientific data and and basically do a visual translation into something that that kind of how do you how would you say that that people understand that people can click with that they see and say oh okay i get it this is what carbon sink is about this is what carbon negative means i mean these are big words and they become very technical and you and i we've had a conversation about this already and we know that people so easily get confused about Where's the difference between carbon sink and carbon removal and you know carbon negative and carbon offset? I mean, these are big, big words floating around in, in a room and nobody can really make too much sense of them. But I think then it's also somebody's responsibility to give images that go and, and basically sort of bring that... Um, yeah, common common translation, so that we have a bridge between science and and people's understanding to be able to engage. Yes, to sort of distill, like get the essential elements. I know. I mean, I you know I've been in conversations around um, the dialogue on climate action, and a lot of what it's like in an effort to make it more accessible, we come up with with terminology that just sort of confuses it. And I think at at this point, we do have this great opportunity to come forward with art and images and stories that connect with people, which brings me, um, you posted recently on your Instagram, uh, a set of stories. I think there is a man who had an accident who who couldn't walk and then Recover. Tell me, am I getting this totally wrong? Or no, you're, you're absolutely not. As, um, in ma as a matter of fact, this is the guy that brought me to this whole hemp story. Mm -hmm. That the South Tyrolean or North Italian guy, whom I met in 2016. Mm -hmm. So what happened? Um, well, when I met him, he was already back to his feet, and he was a very dynamic um, person. And then. You know, I he invited me to his farm and he gave me a short pep talk about hemp. And then suddenly he says something like, oh, I had a skiing accident. And I broke my neck and I was sitting in the wheelchair. And I'm thinking like, I don't think I'm really getting the story because this guy in the wheelchair is standing in front of me and walking around on an alpine farm. And then 
I kind of asked him again. I was like, wait a minute, are you talking about yourself? Or are you talking about somebody else? And he was like, no, no, this was me. This was me, you know, eight years at that point back. And so we kind of dove into his personal story and he had that horrific accident, which he was actually very lucky that he survived it at all. And he made it out of the wheelchair after about three quarters of a year. And hemp was sort of his little compass to really manage to get back into life because he was using he was using uh, hemp oils to fight the pains that he was having. He was using the hemp protein to build up his muscle that was heavily uh, disabled due to that uh, broken neck that he had. So he really needed to fix a lot of the, the muscle strength to be able to get back on his feet. And he comes from a building materials family. So he was the one to, to then say, wait, I heard that you can even make building materials from this plant. So he started researching this and together with his dad, they took about six years to develop a hemp brick and they're commercially building houses with this right now. And when I visited him, he actually took me through this farmstead that he has, this mountain farm that he rebuilt with hemp brick. So this is like a, uh, what would you call it? Like a real life um, example for the hemp brick that he was fabricating. So if people were interested in what it means to be living in a hemp house, they would come and visit him and get tours of the house. And so his his place is like a melting pot. It's like meeting point of earth because there's like Chinese people come and there's people from all over the world that accumulate in his farm and, and just are there to take workshops or to have a look at the house or to just get inspired by what all you can do from him. No kidding. So, and I, um, do they call it hempcrete or hemp, like concrete plus hemp? Exactly. So the professional way to, to call it would be hempcrete. And he, he kind of, um, he made something rather unique, which, okay, it was around like the hemp bricks were around before, but not really in that format that he did, because he makes these huge bricks that are pretty wide, and you can actually build the entire house with it. So it will be the inside wall, but it also will be the outside wall. And you have no lining in the middle where you need to stuff any insulation or anything because the hemp plus the limestone, which means the hemp chives plus the limestone and the binder is the entire material that you're taking to build that entire house. Fascinating. I do not know enough about construction to dive deeper into that, but it uh, I do know that concrete is and cement is like the material we use most on earth. And a lot of our emissions come from the production of that. And so it's exciting that that, so are there, I'm, a, I'm just guessing that there are passionate people advocating for the scale up of hemp and concrete. Do you, are you familiar with that or could um, you? I, I actually do because the hemp industry in in the building industry sector is actually something that, that was heavily interesting to me because as you just mentioned, the building industry is one of these industries that emits a huge amount of carbon dioxide on the whole global scale. And you know, concrete takes up a lot of energy to be produced and it also takes up a lot of sand. We're running out of sand. So there's a lot of issues with the concrete industry. And the hempcrete is basically made from a plant part, from a, a naturally occurring, uh, the limestone. 
And then the binders are usually also organic. So you're basically having three parts of, of uh, material that are mixed together that are forming a super long-lasting house. So in comparison, a modernly built house on concrete or cement will is usually designed to be lasting 30 years at the moment from the industry. And a hempcrete house will actually get better and harder over time. So you know, unless you tear it down, this thing will last at least 100 years, probably even longer. I mean, the Romans built with the same material, and we still find architecture from the old Roman Empire. Wow. So why? I mean, it. it I'm sure there's a great... <laughs> There was some lobby that advocated to get rid of this incredible. What what happened? Do you think? Why did that not become the mainstream standard? Well, you literally just mentioned it. I mean, lobbies are so much behind everything. I'm I'm not a big fan of conspiracy theory, but um, this probably. <laughs> this probably to many people will now sound like it. But talking petrochemical industries. The building industry um, that that basically um, draws from cement and concrete and steel, these are all the industries that are obviously not too interested that hempcrete will get too big because it could seriously affect our industries, our building industries in the long run because houses will last longer. It will also be a part of once you do take a house down, I mean, this is this is not just a saying, but you can basically take the remnants of your house and then put it on your flower garden bed and and use it as fertilizer. And that's not something that will fill up our landfills with petrochemical toxic waste that you know eventually starts kind of flipping back on us because we're we can't really discard of all of this stuff. And plus, we need to think about reusing our resources versus just depleting the resources for our natural resources that we have. It's so, I mean, it sounds so like my, my sense coming new into understanding hemp, I've always kind of seen, um, and I live in Northern California where we have, you know, marijuana is legalized and it has always kind of been like this cultish sort of fringy, um, I've always had that sense around it, like, oh, the, you know, the people who love hemp and hemp clothing and hemp candles. And I sort of had had it in my mind kind of in this fringy bucket, but somehow the construction materials um, brings it more into the mainstream. I, it's such an interesting and worthy cause to take up. So Marin, you're, I mean, what do you see? What's the pathway to What's what's your roadmap for for championing mainstreaming of hemp? Uh, I think my my roadmap right now is when I look back at what I've done the four years I've been collecting, I've been gathering, I've been investigating, and I've really tried my best to become an expert within the hemp industry. So I really know my math because um, one of the things you just said, you know, that it's like a bit of a scruffy. Uh, thing when you talk about hemp usually also comes from certain people and i totally agree with you looking into the hemp industry globally you will always have these certain people that are just you know i always say jokingly they smoke as much hemp or marijuana as they actually do in the industrial applications with it and when you take that it will always sort of keep that little bit of scuffiness to it and 
that's why I really needed to beef on my math because there's a lot of myth circling around in that industry. Like, you know, Facebook is full with these posters where they post like, okay, hemp can replace all of cotton. Well, that's very unrealistic that hemp can replace all of cotton because even hemp won't grow in these super dry areas where cotton grows right now. Given if it would, we would need the same amount of superfluous water as cotton does. So it doesn't really make any sense. Um, I think, you know, keeping, keeping to a realistic base with hemp is very important and you need to be, I would say, well educated and, and well rounded in your understanding of the plant. There are certain limitations. Hemp is not the savior of our world. Obviously not. I mean, there's other plants out there that will help save the world along with hemp. And then there's us humans, and we have to put our little input into this entire thing as well. I mean, it's not just going to be hemp that's going to solve all of our human-made problems. And um, my roadmap right now is to really hit the mainstream media with the stories that I've brought back from these 26 different countries of the world to to give people a better understanding and not just an understanding that's based on these mythical, you know, crazy stories where you afterwards find out that half of it might not be exactly right. But I really want to educate. And um, so one of the main tasks right now is uh, publishing this book where we'll have, yeah, it will be a good compilation of the hemp pioneers of the topic of circular economies, of how hemp is being you know, applied in the different uh, industrial applications that you can use it for. And then, of course, there's going to be a couple more things that kind of go alongside. We're working with an Icelandic production company right now on a documentary film about hemp, which will also include a lot of these views that I came home with from, you know, kind of global perspective. Um, and then I also want to do a traveling exhibition that gives people in you know all different parts of the world just a chance to kind of be with these images and get inspired by them at the same time as being able to ask questions and have sort of a platform where you can legitimately talk about the questions, concerns, um, inputs, inspirations versus only having these you know kind of Facebook line comments going like, okay, hemp delivers four times more fiber than cotton. Hemp doesn't use herbicides and pesticides. For the most, this is totally true, but you can't really you can't really globalize it like that. Hemp grows different in all kinds of climate zones and there are certain specifications to it. So for example, Europe is not really capable of doing hemp fiber, but China is. While America has marijuana legalized, you guys have the industrial hemp partially not even legalized. And this is why you guys are really good in the medical applications, while Europe is better in the building industry. So, so many things in my head right now. So you went to 26 different countries exploring the application of hemp and how it how it is being developed in different places. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. And you must be, I mean, are you the world expert? Who's more <laughs> expert than you? I'm just curious. Are oh, you I'm the world expert at this point? Who's done such exhaustive work and can lay out the retrospective like this? I'm, I've, I've met a, a really a 
big handful of amazing people who have done great work. There's people who have authored wonderful handbooks. There's people who have um, traveled all states of the United States in a in a bus to do hemp education. There's, mm-hmm. there's really wonderful people out there who are doing a lot for the education. Is there I, an organization? Is there like the International Organization of Hemp Hemp Realists? Um, I don't know. <laughs> oh, that's a, that's a good idea. We should found that. <laughs> we should. It needs like a focal point. Uh, there, there are international hemp associations. So we have the European Industrial Hemp Association, namely the IHA. Mm-hmm. Um, they're actually having the world's biggest hemp conference next week. No uh, kidding. Yeah. In, on in the virtual world or in the real world? It's it's unfortunately only in the online world, but mm-hmm. I think regardless, I looked at the program as I will also be speaking there. Um, they have amazing panelists, and I think it will be just eye-opening as every year. Um, they basically show off the new products that have been done from hemp, you know, hemp plastic, hemp building, hemp textiles. And- hemp plastic. Oh, this would be amazing, wouldn't it? What if we could replace plastics with hemp plastic? That I think that would be, or that is one of the huge potentials of hemp. So it's maybe not quite right when I say hemp plastic, because that makes people think that you can make an equivalent to plastic from hemp, which is, you know, purely technically spoken, not quite right. I should rather call it a hemp composite, but um, hemp com- or or biocomposites are you can make them from cork you can make them from hemp you can literally make them from any material that's out there but hemp is the strongest plant fiber in the world so it has certain qualities that probably won't be met by other um plants and hemp actually is being used as a as a biocomposite in car doors and car panels by big car companies by bmw by audi you know you name it that's fascinating. I think within the travel community, you know, I see travel as an opportunity because travel is so global and such a large industry. I see its potential to forward climate action goals. And the um, the potential for travel with hemp is also so present. And my mind is now thinking about inviting hemp people to adventure travel world summits and <laughs> things like this. I'll take us, I'll take us down and down a long conversation. If I do that, I won't do that. What's the center for art and humanity. And is that a place where people can sort of get to know you and your work better? Um, it certainly is. It would just require that I stop my car living time for finishing my hemp project <laughs> and finally return to my center of arts and humanity. But the center of arts and humanity actually was sort of my little child by heart. And I founded it while I was doing a 2,500 mile bike ride down the East coast of the United what? States. <laughs> you are bananas. I okay, let's hear about that, Marin. <laughs> so I was fresh out of college. I had just finished my OPT year and I was kind of, you know, trying to come up with a worthy way of saying goodbye to the United States before I went back to Europe. And I decided to hop on a bike and and do the East Coast um bike ride and I started in Anasquam, which is a little bit north of Boston, where I was staying with a friend. And I made it down to Stewart, Florida to visit my 
um, photography mentor whom I mentioned earlier. And it was such an amazing time while I was on that bike, you know, and then obviously it also gave me a lot of space and time to think about now what, what's next? And these were really the two questions that sort of triggered me and, and, and really propelled me down that coastline because I, I did not want to waste my time by continuing to work in jobs that I didn't really feel I was either really good at or I could really contribute well. And I kind of wanted to find something that was a cause that I could combine my artistic interest as well as my environmental and humanistic interest. And while I was cycling along, it was pretty much in the first few days, I was like, I, I think it's going to be a center for arts and humanity. And then I kept asking myself, but, but what am I going to do? <laughs> <laughs> and I kept uh, thinking that the reason why I labeled it a center was because I was so inspired by artist residencies that I had seen in college. You know, you got to know these amazing people that just came from somewhere in the world and basically stationed at SCAD for maybe two days or maybe a week or maybe even longer. And they just passed on so much invaluable expertise and experience to us as students. And I kept thinking that I really want to keep this in my life. So if I don't have it in my life because I'm leaving the United States and I'm leaving that network of artists and professors and peers that I was basically, that I had grown up during my college days, uh, within that, you know, I kind of needed to recreate that when I was going back to Europe. So I moved to Germany and I took on um, a historic home that my mom had uh, restored. She's an architect. And that's where I basically, you know, kind of build in my center for arts and humanity. And we did a lot of absolutely wonderful projects over the course of almost, I would say, 10 years. I've gotten very quiet in it over the last four years just because I've been basically traveling the world and I couldn't really get back to running any artist programs um, in the center. But we came up with a bunch of people and we founded a project called We Art. And the We Art project had been applied to so many different causes. So we always took a social challenge that we found that was basically surrounding us in our immediate surroundings of the city and said, okay, how do we address it through art? What can we do to help these people or the circumstance? And we had all kinds of different uh, projects. So we had um, a project that was about integrating handicapped people into society. Then we had a project concerned with um, what should be done with historic homes that are, that are under historic preservation, where the state of Germany actually invested a lot of money to keep them alive, but they were not publicly available. So we started making artists and residencies in some of these old homes, which brought up a collaboration with Bauhaus University. And then I was working with them for a while and did another project with them. That was also a We Art project. I even went back to um, Central America, to Panama, where I had engaged in the International Community Service Program after school and did a We Art with them, which was concerning you know, sustainability, environmental concerns in a very rural uh, community that, that basically didn't have too many touch points with, with urbanism or with any 
means of coming out of the poverty that they were in at that point. So it was a very diverse project, and these things were all run through the center. Um, for I our love department. it. I mean, we. I I think the um, there's so much. I mean, we're just kind of at the start of our collaboration with Tomorrow's Air and having you as an artist for Air and seeing where that will lead us. But the um, we're so on the same on the same wavelength with looking at how art can advance these kinds of social and environmental causes. I we need to do a we art project on on carbon removal, Marin. That's but when we get when we get the hemp book out, let's go for that. Um, <laughs> oh, I love that. <laughs> my so uh, let's see. My final I think we have to wrap up. I could talk to you for hours because you keep popping in with these like surprising little nuggets like you know, this cross-country bike ride. Uh, um, so I want to ask you before we close a question about music, which I ask everyone on our show, which is what kind of music, what kind of music were you listening to when you were young and what kind of music are you listening to now? And for some people this, you know, there's a lot of change from youth to to wherever we are in our advancing youth and for other people it's totally the same so i'm curious about your musical taste that is such a good question <laughs> really getting down to it <laughs> so in my youth i was listening mainly i guess to the radio i still remember these times when you were recording your favorite songs you know the top charts yes, on the right and with the tape deck and you press yes, yes. <laughs> totally did that in my bedroom yes yes and then you out when the tape would like feed in and you're having all these you know bands all flying around and that was a big disaster <laughs> mm-hmm. um yeah but i think next to being morelessly oriented on sort of the you know the the what do you call it like the the top charts of the radio in my youth i think what always really got me was indigenous sounds like mm-hmm any indigenous music I, my parents took me a lot to to travel in the world so I, I i was fortunate enough already at a very young age to see very many different cultures and countries and i know it was mesmerizing to me i would become almost like just frozen in whenever i would hear indigenous sounds and indigenous tunes and just you know hang out and nobody would be able to remove me from the site until they were done playing and uh, hence, I would say nowadays, uh, music that really fascinates me is usually something that has these very rhythmic uh, beats that come from um, intercultural music. So I would say I'm a absolutely non-mainstream music listener. Uh, I hardly listen to radio unless it's like news stations or or things that are you know, podcasts, things that interest me, topics on on environment or travel or you know different uh, cultures but that's more the spoken word and apart from that i really love intercultural music and <laughs> i have a very interesting friendship with a french photographer his name is gigi and gigi is a very good friend of mine and he is awesome because he's like i call him dj gigi and he supplies me with his latest tunes once a month and that's how I get like the best music library, and it's 
it's definitely music that I would never find anywhere else and probably wouldn't even stumble upon, but I just love it. I love it too. So I would, maybe you can send us a couple links. I think um, in the show notes, we're going to start including little playlists because people just are so endlessly fascinating. And if you have any, uh, any links that you can share, I don't know if any of that's out there on SoundCloud or wherever we would love to add it to the notes. Actually, I will definitely do that. I will send you a list of my very most favorite songs from Gigi. <laughs> Wonderful. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Marin. Uh, we will certainly hear more from you in the future. Thank you so much, Christina, for having me. It was a lovely interview and lovely podcast. <laughs>